Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney. I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution, and my collaborator on this fine Friday morning is Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and we are talking about a idea, and again, don't want to get people too upset with the you know, the, the uh, claim that we might be uh, overthrowing the government or something of that sort. No, no, no. This is a thought project in which we were looking at our current constitution and looking at the disaster that has unfolded here in Washington, D.C. as this constitution is twisted and distorted and realized maybe some um, proper checks and balances weren't built into the system that our founders, with as much much foresight as they had, could not foresee the kind of disasters that we have unfolding before us because we've got a clearly out-of-control government in Washington, D.C. that (laughs) doesn't care anything for its job description. Uh, But perhaps, and this is our thought experiment here, that perhaps we can create uh, uh, alternatives to the current Constitution that would lock down a federal government a federal government that instead of spending, well, what is it now, $200 trillion, uh, money we don't have, uh, spending this money or promising to spend this money and uh, you know, doing all sorts of things and developing all sorts of departments and agencies that uh, restrict our liberties rather than preserve our liberties. Instead of that mess that we have in the, the Leviathan in Washington today, we can have a limited federal government, a federal government that actually does the job of protecting and defending God-given rights of the people. And that uh, the major check, both Phil and I are contending, the major check on a federal government that would stay within the boundary limits, the major check has to be the state governments. And again, our founders had that in mind. You read Federalist Paper number 45, and it's clear that they believe that the states had more powers. Uh, actually unlimited powers compared to the delegated, lim- limited, enumerated powers of the federal government. But obviously that's not working. And we know that there's a number of reasons why that uh, system of checking the power of the federal government has failed. So we're looking at the idea of, well, what could we create that would actually check the federal governments from uh, the pers- perspective of the states having more power than the federal government, that the federal government actually be the servant of we the people by being the servant of the state governments rather than the ruler and the master of the state governments that taxes the state uh, citizens to death and, uh, and, and then goes on and spends that tax m- money to bribe the states into doing what it wants the states to do. In other words, completely backwards rather than the federal government serving the states and the people now the federal government serves itself, and the people and the states have to fund the federal government doing whatever it pleases. And boy, what it pleases is not in our best interest in so, so many ways. So this thought experiment, we're in the midst of it, and we invite your feedback. We invite your thoughts, your questions, and you can contact me directly at my personal email, which is dwitney, D-W-H-I-T-N-E-Y, at theamericanview.com. That's all one word, theamericanview.com. D.com. D. Whitney at TheAmericanView.com. We invite your feedback questions because we want to propose an idea and, and launch an idea across a grassroots movement in America that says, wait a minute, our federal government is way out of control. 
We need to rein that government in. We need to bring it back to its true purpose to serve we the people in protecting our God-given rights. Well, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts this morning uh, in this thought experiment? Well, Article 1, Section 8 of the current Constitution is where most of Congress's legislative powers are identified. These would be listed in Article 4, Section 8 in a new Constitution. Some of the powers are transcribed without change. While the language of others is modified, these four powers are eliminated. First, to establish post offices and post roads. Second, to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. Third, to constitute tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court. And last, to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States, or in any department or office thereof. Concerning post offices, unfortunately, the Constitution of 1787 established them as a monopoly of the federal government. The Smithsonian website has positive words for its operations in the first half of the 19th century, when Alexis de Tocqueville toured the young country in 1831. The United States boasted twice as many post offices as Britain and five times as many as France. Today, much of our communications are electronic and information is delivered in seconds. Private services are available today that could cost, uh, could more cost-effectively deliver physical mail. The United States Postal Service should be auctioned off to the highest bidder. The term post road is potentially problematic. The Law Dictionary defines post roads as the roads or highways, by land or sea, designated by law as the avenues over which the mails shall be transported. When the driver in the familiar U.S. Postal Service truck deposits mail in your mailbox, isn't it fair to say that mail has been transported to your street? By that logic, every street in the United States qualifies as a post road, and every road should be controlled by the federal government. Surely that was not the intent of the framers of the Constitution of 1787. Concerning Congress being empowered to regulate commerce, this has become one of the greatest abuses of liberty promoted by the federal government over its lifetime. The federal government may be allowed to propose regulations, but unless they had been approved by the Council of States, they would be null and void. The states among themselves are fully capable of determining how they wish to regulate commerce. Note that the removal of this congressional power implies the removal of the Department of Commerce. Concerning Congress's power to establish tribunals inferior to the United States Supreme Court, a new constitution would remove the federal government's ability to create new subdivisions. In the case of the federal judiciary, the current organizational structure would be retained, but there should be no need to expand it, given that a new constitution should severely reduce the federal caseload. Concerning Congress being empowered, to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers, that is the role of all legislative body and need not be inserted into a constitution redundantly. If its inclusion created no harm, one might tolerate the presence of this provision. Historically, that has not been the case. When all other rationalizations have failed, the necessary and proper clause, like implied powers, has been called upon to facilitate judicial mischief. It has no place in an improved constitution. Let's look at taxation. The first provision of the current Article 1, Section 8 states, 
The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense, general welfare of the United States. But all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. Under no constitution, the federal government has no power to tax, since it has proven over the history of the United States that it is unable to restrain its voracious appetite for its citizens' wealth. Under a new constitution, its needs for funds would be severely restricted to constitutional outlays and overseen by a council of states. The federal government would still propose a federal budget through a process in which executive departments would request funds for the following year. A zero budgeting process should be described in the second level of Article 4, Section 8. This description would add the force of constitutional law. Congress would still review these, those requests and modify them as appropriate. But the final budget approval would be the prerogative of the Council of States borrowing money on the credit of the United States. Every organization, family, and individual needs to be able to borrow money occasionally. Some of that borrowing can be for a considerable period of time, such as the 30-year mortgage on a home. Generally, lenders require security for significant loans. The current lending to the federal government is based upon the assumption that the citizenry may be taxed infinitely, which is unrealistic. Other governments have tried that, notably the French under Louis XVI, and that led to revolution. In the case of the federal government, lenders have been deluded by constantly receiving payment on their loans to the United States. If the currency were stable, that would be reliable, would be a reliable indicator of the ability to pay. But the currency of the United States has been devalued by 94% since the Federal Reserve System began operation in 1914. The amount of money that has been created out of thin air during that period of time may be accurately described as inflation. The effect of that inflation on the current price level is not measurable because other factors enter into the calculation. While inflation is tolerated, and as can be seen, the citizenry of the United States has already tolerated it for almost 110 years, inflation amounts to a hidden tax on the productive, non-politically connected, in favor of the non-productive, politically connected. Although allowing the federal government to borrow is necessary, allowing the federal government to borrow without limit is like giving a child a credit card and encouraging the child to spend endlessly. How can federal government borrowing be reasonably limited? Fortunately, the concept of large numbers works to lessen the need for federal borrowing. If one department overspends in a given year, another should underspend. Under the circumstances, it seems reasonable that the federal government should not be allowed to overspend the budget allowed to it by the council states in any three-year period over which the federal government should be required to balance its budget. This should allow the federal government to meet any contingency. But what about more? More financing is no different than the funding of ordinary federal operations. It may be necessary to fund wartime activity through borrowing in one year, but if the war effort is considered to be legitimate by the citizenry, the Council of States should find no difficulty in increasing the federal operations allotment as necessary. It is a mistake to consider wars as long-term investments, such as a mortgage on a new home. A new home is a productive asset. War, wars destroy assets. Naturalizations and bankruptcies. The current language in the Constitution may be retained to establish a uniform rule of naturalization and uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcies uh, throughout the United States, coining money and establishing standards. The comparable language in the current Constitution is to coin money 
regulate the value thereof and a foreign coin and fix the standard of weights and measures. The modified language in a new constitution would be the coin money establish the denominations thereof and fix the standard of weights and measures. The idea of, of a government establishing the value of money is an absurdity. The value of anything, including money, is established by the free market. Concerning weights and measures, this clause would allow the federal government to move to the international digital standard of weights and measures. Note that this clause does not grant the federal government the power to set standards generally. For example, it does not give the federal government power to establish a standard character set to be used in digital communication. In its heyday, IBM attempted to force its competitors to employ a character set, EBC-DIC. The market resisted by insisting on ASCII instead. ASCII has been upgraded to Unicode. Without federal government intervention, the value of a two-level constitutional document is that examples such as this may be incorporated in the second level to limit federal government power creep counterfeiting. Following language may be retained. Provide for the punishment of counterfeiting securities and current coin of the United States, intellectual property. Likewise, this language may be retained to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times for authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. <clears throat> It is acknowledged that this provision has been criticized as monopolistic and therefore a hindrance to economic growth. The supporters of intellectual property protection also make a reasonable case that eliminating this protection removes the incentive to innovate, which would have a disastrous impact on economic growth and human flourishing. Rather than positioning an already innovative new constitution with the burden of testing such a major economic change, it makes more sense to allow the people to determine how intellectual property is to be handled. If they wish to change this rule, they may use the amendment process, piracies, the law of nations, and declarations of war. These two powers would be retained by the federal government to define and punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas and offenses against the law of nations, to declare war, granting letters of mark and reprisal, and make rules concerning capture on land and water. This is another area where the second level of the Constitution is important. At that level, it would be made clear that the War Powers Act and any similar legislation is null and void. Only Congress is empowered to declare war, which simultaneously establishes a class of enemies of the United States. War would be defined as the any offensive military operation, any operation designed to interfere with the trade of a nation at which the United States was not at war. For example, sanctions or seizure of assets of foreign governments or individuals. Raising military forces. The following two provisions are, are related. <clears throat> to raise and support armies, but no appropriation of money to then use shall be made for longer than two years to provide and maintain a navy. These would be modified as follows. To raise and support armies and an air force but no appropriation of money to that use shall be for a longer term than two years. Military forces controlled by state governments may not be raised in the absence of a de declaration of war and also to provide and maintain a aid. The distinction in the treatment funding was the founding generation's concern that military forces would be turned on the citizenry. 
Although naval forces might threaten coastal cities, they could not be used effectively against citizens residing in the interior of the United States. Regulation and training of military forces. The next three related provisions would be modified slightly to make rules for the government and regulation of land and naval forces, to provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections and repel invasions, to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia, and for governing such part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States, reserving to the states respectively the appointment of the officers and the authority of training the militia according to discipline prescribed by Congress. Following provision would be removed since earlier language in the new constitution makes it clear that state-controlled military forces may only be pressed into federal service according to provisions of a declaration of war to provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the nation, suppress insurrections, and repel invasions. The District of Columbia. This provision in the current constitution reads, to exercise exclusive leg legislation in all cases whatsoever over such districts, not exceeding 10 miles square, as made by session of particular states and the acceptance of Congress, become the seat of the government of the United States and execute, exercise like authority over all places purchased by the consent of the legislature of the state, in which the same shall be for erection of forts, magazines, arsenals, dockyards, and other needful buildings. This would be modified as follows. To exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over the District of Columbia, not exceeding 10 miles square, as the seat of government of the United States. This sovereignty may in no way be delegated. Such officials of Washington, D.C. may not be allowed sovereignty, which is what to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever means. In effect, these Washington, D.C. officials would be dictating to Congress if that were the case. The second part of this provision would state exercise like authority over all places at least by the consent of the legislature of the state in which the same shall be for the erection of forts, magazines, arsenals, dockyards, and other needful buildings. Under a new constitution, the federal government, having no wealth of its own except that acquired through the citizens, is not in a position to own property. In the event of disputes over the use of the property by the federal government, such disputes would be resolved by the Supreme Court of the United States. Well, wrapping all of this up, to those accustomed to how the federal government operates under the current Constitution, these changes may seem drastic. It's important to remember the immense gap between original expectations and current reality that has arisen since the federal government was established in 1789. Arguably, the federal government's operations have predate, created the most contentious society in the history of the United States. If that contention continues to be magnified, that will lead to a bloody civil war. Better to consider drastic modifications to the operation of the federal government than to experience the devastation of civil bloodshed and property destruction. But, amen. Uh, yes, it, uh, it looks like we are headed towards such a disaster that would... Uh... Uh, the, the rift between those who I would call them the, the, the takers, you know, the, those who are, are the beneficiaries of this current federal government, because some way, shape or form, uh, maybe their company, maybe personally, they're getting something out of it that other citizens are not. So some people are paying into it. Some citizens getting money from that. Uh, that's really not a just system of government. And just to back up for a second and, and look at the, 
you know, the 30,000 foot view, we need to recall what our founders said the purpose of government was. They said three principal things. There is a creator God. Our rights come from him. And thirdly, the only purpose of human civil government is to protect those God-given rights. Now, what they were echoing is actually the words of scripture. The apostle Paul in Romans 13 wrote this, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister. That's the civil magistrate is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So the primary function then of civil government is to punish the evildoers and praise or encourage those who do what is right. That is those who are obeying uh, the laws of God, the laws of nature, nature's God as our founder styled it in the Declaration of Independence. So when we see this view of government, we realize that uh, government taking from one set of people uh, by, uh, by taxation and giving it to their preferred set of, uh, oh, well, federal employees, uh, federal recipients of very, various welfare programs, various housing pro, and on and on the list goes. Uh, not to mention the corporations that are also receiving the federal largesse uh, and getting a benefit, a monopolistic benefit, by the way, with a uh, big government and big business cooperating together. By the way, we need to remember the very definition of fascism is exactly that. Big government and big business cooperating together for the advantage of both of, of them. So these are the things we need to think about as we uh, walk through what changes uh, are needed to be made. And I agree with you. Certainly, we do not need post offices and post roads. We've got a system that uh, I guess at our founders' era that could not envision a system that would function outside of some uh, a federal government pulling together. Uh, but now we've got plenty of uh, private enterprises as well as obviously electronic communication where such post offices and post roads are, are no longer necessary. And you're absolutely right to say we need to eliminate this commerce clause to regulate commerce in foreign nations among several states and with the Indian tribes because this has been the most abused, most abused uh, clause in our current federal constitution. So much so that I forget which uh, pundit did this, but he set up a lemonade stand in New York City. <laughs> and he was accosted and basically shut down and ultimately charged with the, you know, well, of course we have the right to control your lemonade stand because it's, uh, it's commerce. It's interstate commerce. When he bought the lemonade in the state of New York, was selling it in the state of no, it's, it's just absolutely ridiculous. So yes, that, that commerce clause needs to go because it has been so abused and, and distorted. And you're right to say that the tribunals, other than the Supreme Court, they also are unnecessary. Uh, and that needs to go as well as the necessary and proper clause, which, as you rightly mentioned, of course, anything that's necessary and proper to, to uh, uh, accomplish the goals and the, uh, the legislative things that are set forward in the actual Constitution, of course, they have the power uh, to do that. Now, when we talk about commerce, I guess one of the things I'm thinking might be important to add or to perhaps put at the second level is the principle of a free trade zone among all the states. And this is really because that was the original intent, the original idea, the whole reason to put the Commerce Clause in there at all was the idea that the states were treating one another as foreign nations. And so if you 
produce a, a widget here in Maryland and you wanted to ship it over the state line into Pennsylvania, you know, the state of Pennsylvania is going to charge you a tariff for transporting that good over state lines to be sold over state lines. And this led to all kinds of various competitions and some states making out better uh, and other states having a terrible loss. I think the relationship between New York and Connecticut is illustrative of that because Connecticut did not have the major port that New York had of New York City. And so much had to be imported to Connecticut. And so uh, the, the imbalance that took place in trade was something that was very destructive. And they r- rightly recognized we need to have a free trade zone. All the states that are in this union, all, all the states that agreed to this compact, we need to agree to this essential idea that if somebody produces something in one state and carries it across state lines to sell it, that state into which he carries it should not be able to tax or, or to impose a tariff or anything of that sort. And then, again, this was the original understanding of our U.S. Constitution before they, uh, our current U.S. Constitution before they completely obliterated, distorted, twisted, and destroyed the very concept, making the Commerce Clause basically a catch-all for anything the federal government wanted to do. Anything at all would come under the excuse of uh, the Commerce Clause. Uh, ridiculously so. Now, uh, one of the things that is curious here is that we currently assume when it comes to the issues of naturalization and immigration, we currently assume that that's a federal uh, power. Federal jurisdiction over naturalizations would also include immigration in most people's minds. And yet, if you look at the history of our constitutional republic, that was not so. Not so until the latter part of the 19th century, where they began to pass some laws that would say, you know, this is what we're going to do in terms of immigration. Up to that point in time, each state got to decide what their own immigration policies would be. So, you know, Florida might have one immigration policy and Arizona might have something very different from Florida. So I guess maybe that's a, a question to debate here. Would it be wise to add to the naturalization clause that the uh, uniform rule of naturalization, which just has to do with the issue of how someone becomes a citizen in this country. What, what is the process of citizenship? And by the way, I'd strongly encourage, like we've talked about before, that there be a, a test, a national test that's offered, that there be courses of study available, and that people need to pass that test with a, a proficiency demonstrating they understand our form of government, and therefore uh, they are to be entrusted with the power of voting. No, not voting just because somebody can breathe on a piece of glass and, you know, they're 18 years old. No, the voters should be those who understand our form of government, are committed to preserving that form of government. They're not here to undermine or destroy uh, or replace it like, uh, you know, Marxists, kind of the AOC Marxists want to do. So uh, the question there would be if naturalizations, yes, federal government naturalization, should it also be a power of the federal government to determine uh, the, uh, the process uh, or how many and who and so forth can immigrate into this country, because currently we have a federal government that claims it has that power to determine the immigration and how many, or in this case, anybody, you know, they just let them all in. And so with states like Texas, or I remember Arizona under Obama decided, hey, we're, we're, we're going to impose what's on the books already, the law of the land, the law that was passed by the federal legislature, we're going to impose that. And they were sued by the Obama administration for actually obeying the law. <laughs> Talk about lawless federal government. They will prevent the states from actually obeying the law. 
But if we just leave it as, as it is in our original constitution, it means the states, each state can determine its own, uh, you know, priorities and what it, what it wants in terms of immigration. And the problem I foresee with that is that immigrants don't always stay put. So, for example, the immigrants uh, coming into uh, Texas, crossing the border of Texas uh, and uh, illegally crossing the border of Texas, they get shipped all over the country. In fact, uh, the governor of Texas is not a kind of humorous thing. He's uh, shipped people to states that say, oh, yes, we want all the immigrants in the world. Please let the whole world come to our doorstep. We say, oh, fine. We don't need them here in Texas, but you need them there in New York. Great. We'll ship them right to you right away without delay. We'll get them on the bus and, and put them in New York City. Or a friend of mine knows of what they see in Washington, D.C. Every day outside the vice president's mansion, there's a bus that are, or multiple buses that arrive and dump illegal aliens who come across the border somewhere, you know, in, in Arizona, California, Texas, and just dump them there in Washington, D.C. <laughs> what in the world's going to so it may be wise to have a national policy of immigration rather than having each state having its own immigration policy. Uh, and I, I, that was the, uh, the way we moved towards, even though our U.S. Constitution was not amended, which I don't think is a proper process. They should have amended the Constitution to make not only naturalization, but immigration uh, part of the federal uh, powers. Uh, but now we have a federal government that, although the law says this is what the proper immigration numbers are to be. These are the number of legal immigrants. We have a, a federal government that basically doesn't obey its own law. It is a lawless administration, this so Biden uh, administration. So that would be my suggestion that perhaps the federal government needs to, we need to add to that naturalization clause that immigration is also uh, something determined at the federal level rather than a hodgepodge of, of each state's uh, doing that. Now, in addition to that, we've also talked about the power of borrowing. You're absolutely right. This is an extremely dangerous power. In fact, the scriptures in the book of Proverbs, it says the borrower is servant to the lender. So if we just allow uh, Congress to borrow willy-nilly of, you know, without any limits whatsoever, yikes, we're inviting disaster. Well, and that's exactly what we're, we're seeing. We've seen some inflation since... Uh, 2020, but I don't think we've seen even the the, the tip of the iceberg of the inflation that is to come as the U.S. dollar is no longer the world's reserve currency, which is what propped us up since uh, of the, the OPEC agreement back the, there in the 70s. Uh, what was uh, propping up our economy was every country in the world needed to get dollars in order to buy, buy oil. And the agreement was all those OPEC nations would only accept dollars in exchange for oil. So People around the world were willing to take our currency, even though we didn't give them anything really of value other than, well, with this piece of paper, you can actually purchase oil. Now that that's ended, and there's the BRICS nations and other nations that are exchanging oil for all kinds of currencies, yuan or the ruble and so on. So there's no longer that standard. What it means is all those dollars, and there are billions upon billions of dollars in circulation around the world. Because for many years, it, it, the dollar was the reserve currency, but the dollar was also, in many countries of the world, a better source of, uh, of preserving your wealth than the currency of the country itself. So like in Venezuela, you know, their currency became worthless and people would, anytime they could possibly exchange 
the Venezuelan currency for the U.S. dollar, they would do so because they knew, oh, I, I could actually preserve the wealth while the hyperinflation happens to the, uh, you know, the Venezuelan currency or the Argentinian currency or whatever currency of, of a failed uh, country that people would, would gravitate to the dollars. But if the dollar suddenly becomes detached and it's no longer a fixed standard of value internationally, which is what we're in the be beginning of that transition, whoa, we're going to see inflation like we've never known before in this country. And um, I don't say that because I uh, hope that that happens. I'd say that because I, I don't see any way around uh, that taking place. So, but, but basically back to this idea of borrowing, we need to have, and I think you've structured a well fill here, that the, that the state council will restrict that borrowing power of the federal government. Because if that's not restricted, oh, Katie, bar the door, everything is going to be lost. And what we don't realize is when the federal government borrows that money, it's borrowing on the credit of us, U.S. citizens, of each of our families. And, and, and so, you know, the debt the, the national debt of, well, it's over $200 trillion. that national debt is our debt. That the idea that that debt will ever be repaid, it means it has to come out of our earnings or our savings or our investments or our, our home ownership. It has to come from somewhere. And ultimately, the federal government has nothing. It's broke. It's broke to the tune of 200 and some odd trillion dollars. And so, uh, when it comes push to shove and those who hold these notes, and I believe China is the one, the largest holder of notes uh, of American debt, other than the Federal Reserve itself, which is a corrupt a cabal of criminal international banksters. But other than that criminal cabal, the nation that holds the most is China, China, oh, which is one of our biggest enemies here. And, uh, you know, one that is not at all friendly towards us holds this debt. What happens when they want their money back? What happens when the dollar is worthless and they demand something of value like land or, or like houses? You know, we could be in a war over over that issue alone. But the the point is well taken, Phil. That you know that borrowing power is something that needs to be uh, severely uh, restricted. And along those same lines, because of inflation and so forth, when we mentioned counterfeiting, it, it reminded me that our original constitution. Oh, current constitution, not as it's been misinterpreted, but the current constitution says that gold and silver are the only valid form of money, that printing pieces of paper called Federal Reserve notes, that's not valid money, constitutionally speaking. There was a time when you could get a silver certificate. That means you turn in your $5 bill and they give you $5 of silver and there's a fixed standard. How much silver do you get for this piece of paper that has a, a five printed on it? How much gold do you get when you have a $20 bill? And if I remember the, the $20 gold uh, uh, the, that, you cash, that you could cash in for gold, you got, a, you got a one ounce gold coin in exchange for your $20 uh, note that, that could be payable in gold. Now you think of that today, gold is what, I, I don't know exact number because it changes from day to day, but it's like a thousand, oh, seven, eight hundred dollars something in that range. You know, that's what a $20 bill was worth back in 1913 before the Federal Reserve came into existence. For a $20 bill, today that $20 bill would buy $1,800 worth of goods and services because it was a gold piece, but it was just the paper. But Fort Knox had all the gold in storage that the paper was connected to. So the paper was simply a receipt for gold that was already actually there. And if you wanted to 
retrieve the physical gold, you could turn in that piece of paper at any bank and get the gold or the silver that was backed by that currency. So anyway, just to mention that that might be important as part of what we talk about, uh, whereas our current constitution says that the states uh, can only uh, have debts paid in gold and silver, which, by the way, creates an enormous problem in our current situation because I don't know anyone that uses gold and silver to pay their state property tax or income tax or sales tax or any of those taxes. So it could be argued that, well, you haven't actually paid it because constitutionally it says that unless it's paid in gold and silver, it's it's not valid. It's like, whoa, that means our states could come and take everything we own because we didn't pay our taxes in gold and silver. So that's, that's an issue I think that also needs to be uh, addressed. In, in regards to copyrights and patents, I'm just wondering if there should be a limit applied to how long the time and should that be at the secondary level of the Constitution? And I say that because I remember something about Disney uh, somehow being able to renew its, its, its copyrights almost indefinitely. And I don't know the exact details, but I'm wondering if there's a problem there in some cases in terms of the limitations that you reach uh, regarding that. And uh, also we talked here about the, at the end there about the militia. And uh, yes, we need to be certain that the militia is preserved in this new okay. constitution because without it, we will lose our government to uh, uh, tyrannical rulers. What's your thoughts, Phil? Well, uh, you mentioned the, the second level idea of the uh, free trade zone. Uh, I'm in agreement with your, your thoughts about the free trade zone. The only thing is I would put it at the first level, uh, at least a summary statement, because it is so important. And yes, uh, perhaps the details you could put at, at the second level. But when you think of, of the importance of that, and this is the essence, I believe, of the Constitution of, of uh, 1787, that it created the first continental, potentially continental, free trade zone. Now think of all of the horrors that Europe went through, the Napoleonic Wars, uh, the Crimean War, um, World War uh, I, World War II, all of that before they finally came to their senses and created essentially a continental uh, uh, free trade zone called the common market. Now, of course, it started out with six nations only, but now it's virtually all of Europe that is a part of this common market idea. I mean, the basic idea is that if people are free to trade, the relationships that they build are so voluntary and so positive that war just does not seem to be very appealing to them. So this has to do not only with commerce, it has to do uh, with foreign policy as well. Um, <clears throat> well, let me just add a comment sure. on that. I've forgotten who, who said this, that they said, if goods will not cross a boundary, a frontier between states. If goods will not cross those boundaries, bullets ultimately will. Okay, that's Frédéric Bastiat, <laughs> yes. who was a uh, uh, mid-19th century French economist. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And he, he also talked about the, uh, subsidies to manufacturers and so forth that he used. I think uh, uh, the candle makers, as his example, <laughs> and, uh, and how you know, if window we, glass? Yeah, you know if we if we could uh, just all have candles, you know, and, and candles could only be made in France. 
you know, and something and, like that. Very, we'll, very humorous. We'll text. We'll text the window, the glass makers, right? So that glass is so expensive, people will have to spend more money on candles, right? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's something like yeah. that. But okay, uniform immigration. Uh, yes, I left that out, and uh, that was not intentional. Believe me, I think you've got a very good point there. Bricks you mentioned, which is, uh, I understand it's Brazil, Russia, India, China, and um, South Africa. Well, that, that's the original group, but the idea is expanding. And uh, my understanding is that this could start a um, just a, a huge selling of uh, dollars overseas because uh, foreigners have been you know, required to acquire these uh, uh, dollars, as you have mentioned, to buy oil and, and other necessities as well have kind of gone along with this. But oil was the, uh, the centerpiece in this. Uh, we have no idea how many dollars are in the hands of foreigners. But if they decide that this is becoming a very questionable, untrustworthy currency and it no longer does its main job, which is to give you the, the medium of exchange for oil, um, those dollars are going to start to flow back. They're going to be sold off. And what we realize, uh, if the supply of something increases, it, its price decreases. Now, what that means for the dollar is that the, the so-called value of the dollar would depreciate. And so, as a result of that, the dollars that each of us gets, all the way from Social Security benefits to employment and, and so forth, uh, uh, or our, our pension benefits, anything that's denominated in dollars uh, results in our disposable uh, income being reduced significantly. And if you think of what can happen in a depression, I mean, it's really, uh, it's just not very good. I mean, currently, we're at 40% of tax receipts with the uh, uh, debt service that we have. In other words, this national debt, we, we hear these phenomenal numbers like $33 billion that uh, uh, we have. And of course, uh, our politicians are down there in Washington figuring out ways how we can increase this with so-called modern monetary theory, it's all craziness because at some point, uh, people are going to look at this and they're going to say, well, wait, wait a sec. If we go into a depression, tax receipts go down and that means that debt service goes up, making it even more difficult for this nation to recover. So, oh, yeah, we, we've seen a, um, a, a kind of an inner political fight going on in the House of Representatives with uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy being dumped and, and people are scratching their heads and say, what's really behind this? Uh, there are a group of, of uh, people down there. I'm going to limit it to a particular party, but uh, one party I think probably dominates in this, is this matter. But they've looked at this. They're looking at the math and they're saying there is only one way this gets resolved, and that is to cut federal government spending. Okay, where are we going to cut? Are we going to cut Medicare? Are we going to cut um, Social Security? And you can't do that. <laughs> okay. Third rail, third yeah. rail, death. Okay, death. how about the Department of Education? Why not? You, know, you, could, you could switch that department off overnight, and it would improve the economy. We don't need it. It's, it's like a boat anchor. Likewise, the Department of Commerce, Department of Agriculture. John Stossel has had something on this 
recently about shutting down the government. And he says, go ahead, do it. Yeah, that's the idea. So uh, there are a lot of factors that are, are involved in, in all of this. And I think we're, we're entering interesting and dangerous times. Indeed, yes. Uh, and you could add to the Department of Energy that's done nothing to help us. <laughs> Energy is more expensive. That, that was what that department was supposedly was created to uh, solve the uh, high gas price problem that, and so on. They didn't do that and, and they haven't done anything for us. But uh, the other factor that we ought to remember is that our federal government does not have control over the interest rate. That's in the control of the private banksters, the Federal Reserve, international criminals, I would call them. And so every time they decide to raise it, which I understand recently, they said, oh, yeah, we're going to raise it again. Then the debt service for, the, for, our, for our, our national debt is even higher. So more money has to go. So it's a, it's a downward cycle. And, uh, you know, I, there's, there's one good way to get out of this. And I, I say this knowing that the um, last president that proposed doing away with the Federal Reserve, and he began to do, he, he took action because he began printing $5 bills that were not Federal Reserve notes. They were Federal Treasury notes. So they were not borrowing from the banksters and having to pay interest to the banksters. And shortly thereafter, uh, on a sunny morning in Dallas, he was shot to death in cold blood, in full view of many witnesses, shot to death. Uh, so I, I say this with that note cautionary that it would be very difficult to accomplish this. But the criminals in this cabal since 1913 have been the owners of the Federal Reserve. And if we were to use our military in a proper defense of we the people here in the United and in light of our proper interests, we would go after every member of that criminal cabal, arrest them, imprison them, and repatriate the wealth that they have stolen from America over the last 110 years. And that wealth is trillions and trillions of dollars because they've robbed 94% of the value of the dollar uh, since 1913. The dollar actual purchasing value of the dollar today is about, uh, is even more than that, it's about three cents on the dollar now. So if you had a dollar bill in 1913, you put it in your mattress and you hid it there and you pulled that dollar bill out today and went to spend it, it would only buy three cents worth of goods or services compared to what it would buy in 1913. And people falsely think, oh, that's inflation, inflation happens. No, no, no. That inflation was programmed into their stealing from us. If you study the dollar and its valuing uh, when it was connected to gold and silver, its valuation did fluctuate, but very minor. And basically, except in times of war, it kept its value all until the Federal Reserve was created when the theft began and 110 years of theft that needs to be repatriated. That would be a good use for our military, for our Air Force and Navy and Army. and Mer That would be a good use. Go repatriate that which has been stolen from we the people by this cabal of criminals. But of course, currently all the generals are probably in the back pockets of these criminals who, because they have uh, unlimited resources in terms of money and, and uh, wealth, that they can pay off these people and the corrupt people stay in power, and the corrupt people in Congress are unwilling to do anything about the criminal cabal that continue to rob we the people. Uh, that's my thought. But anyway, the interest rate's another thing that our Congress isn't even in control of that. The Federal Reserve, they determine the interest rate however they wish to do so. I, I would like to make some comments, but I, I really agree with most of what you're saying. Uh, 
let's go back to the purpose of a central bank. The purpose of a central bank is to inflate the money supply, period. And all you need to do is to look at the history of the Bank of England, why it was, was formed, how it operated over the years, and so forth. And then you look at every other central bank and <clears throat> try to find those that did not inflate the money supply. You're going to have a very frustrating experience. Now, it is correct that the Fed and the bank system are able to influence the interest rate, but that is within limits. And we have seen that at the peak of the, the bubble here in the United States and, and worldwide, that the, uh, uh, they were able to drive down the interest rate to effectively zero, which of course makes no economic sense whatsoever. There are market forces that ultimately uh, became dominant. The Federal Reserve System was forced to increase its rates. Uh, they are, yeah, they would like to reduce them because they were a political animal. You know that that benefits them as well as as the federal government and all the people who are involved in this. But it's doubtful they can really return to where they were. Do you think it is a possible project to actually repatriate the wealth that's been stolen from we the people for 110 years? Well, I wish I could say yes, but I, I can't. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't. I, I love your idea of using the military for that purpose. I mean, <laughs> that would certainly be uh, justifiable. But no, it gets so complicated. You know, all of the, you look at all the transactions that have occurred. No, it would be very difficult. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think that's something this new constitution needs to make absolutely clear that we're not going to have any monetary control outside of our own government. The, this, this idea of having a you know a entity, the Federal Reserve, that could create money out of thin air and benefits itself by loaning that money to the American people, and the American people have to pay them interest on money that they created out of thin air. All of that needs to be absolutely locked down. That cannot ever happen again. Uh, now, I don't know what happens. You know, one of the things that historically has happened with the creation of a new government, the new government repudiates the debts of the former government. So that's them. You go get that money from them. That's not us. We, the people, uh, we formed a new government and we're, we're not doing any repayment of any of that. Now, that probably would result in war with China or, or some of the other nations that might hold enormous. And so it might be a, a wiser thing to say, okay, we're going to pay back that which is uh, from other sovereign nations, but the Federal Reserve are just a gang of criminals and we're not paying them a penny. They get nothing back of what uh, they have supposedly loaned to us. In fact, we put them out of business in our country. We'll not allow them to operate uh, on the soil of the United States. So, uh, you know, and again, that might be a second level of, of how this uh, constitution is structured, something stated at, the, at that second level, but I think it's important to prevent what happened in 1913, the creation of the Federal Reserve, from ever happening again uh, in, in a constitutional republic uh, that would seek to protect the God-given rights and people, including our God-given right, not only to uh, keep the fruit of our labor, but also to uh, not be robbed uh, by somebody that's in collusion with our government. And that's really what I would argue. The Federal Reserve is a, a collusion game with Congress that results in robbing the people. And there's very few people, Ron Paul was one, and there may be one or two others, very few people who stood up against that and said, no, no, this is wrong. We should not be doing this. We need to bring an end to this. For Ron Paul famously was calling repeatedly for the auditing of the Fed 
Of course, the Fed was never audited because they said, no, we, we, we're not going to be looked at by you. We are above you. We are your masters. You are our servants. And that's the borrower is servants of the lender principle being worked out in, in, our, in, our, in our country. Well, definitely, I agree that uh, certainly at the secondary level of a constitutional document that this needs to be spelled out. And the, the beauty of the second level is that you can use examples. You can refer right back and say, this is what happened and this is what we're not going to do again. Now, I think that, that um, the proposals I've made so far have been kind of silent on this. Um, but the major thing here is that the Council of States has this overall uh, uh, directorship responsibility. And so we're no longer relying upon this cozy relationship between Congress and the Federal Reserve System, um, you know, both of which uh, benefit from that relationship. Um, so I think that we have an opportunity that way. If there's a, a way that should be made more explicitly at the first level, I agree with that. But uh, definitely, this is something that there's no place for the Federal Reserve System uh, in, in, uh, under a new constitution. And secondarily, I like your thought about you know making people pay back for the evil that they've done, uh, for the stealing that they've done. And there is a possibility that maybe in the future, what we should be doing is um, if uh, our representatives and senators down in Washington create legislation that is unconstitutional and somehow it sneaks through, that they should be held accountable for the losses, personally. Mm -hmm. And tarred and feathered and run out of town, perhaps. <laughs> yes, I don't think... Public embarrassment. <laughs> I, I'm backing off of, of uh, drawing and quartering them on the wall. Yeah, right. But tarring and feathering, that was a, that was a favorite tactic in the, in the war uh, for independence here in our country. Well, uh, this is, uh, uh, again, we want to express that this is our thinking through the problems that have occurred in sometimes misinterpretation of our existing constitution, or at times there's holes left in the structure that our founders couldn't see, things would develop that they had no idea about, and, and therefore uh, the problems that we're seeing now, we're, we're trying to address uh, in, in this thought project of a proposed new constitution, uh, that uh, we would love to hear from you. Again, my email, dwhitney at theamericanview.com. We invite you to check out our podcast. We have a new uh, uh, unfolding and, uh, and developing of our website that's going to make it much more easier to access every bit of information available there. So go to the website 1180wfyl.com and look up the podcast We the People, Constitution Matters and join us again next Friday morning at 8 a.m.